Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. Dave, the leads are weak. Leads have always been weak. Yeah, that's what I hear about, uh, especially from our marketing teams. But I, I think we have a guy to help us weed our way All through All the that. time. How many times a week do we hear that as we're talking to businesses? Two, three times a week from sales teams? Yep. The leads are weak. Leads are weak. Well, you and I are in a unique position in that sometimes we understand that leads aren't always weak. Sometimes it's a question of what you do with them. And sometimes... When you've been a salesperson for a long, long time, or if you're just getting started in it, you just really don't know what to do. And it's good to have a process and it's good to have an idea of what to do. So what does a business typically do in that scenario? Well, they hire a coach. And I would say a lot of the coaches that you hire, they have their own patented nine-step process in order to achieve success. And then they, uh, if you don't follow it, then you're an idiot. But there are People out there who are, are good coaches, and that's who our guest is today, is is uh, Scott Plum from the Minnesota Sales Institute. Hey, Scott. Thanks for joining hey, us. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you and your listeners. And I'm, I'm anxious to share some of uh, the skills, the advice, my beliefs, opinion when it comes to sales. And for the salespeople to really scratch their head and go, you know... I'm not sure if that works. Or sometimes they say, you know, I used to do that. Why did I ever stop? Or the company that I was working at before did that. How come we don't do that here? And I want to really create some inspired friction where people are kind of scratching their head going, you know, I might give that some thought and might consider applying it. So if we can just start with consideration and then go from there on applying new techniques, we're on the path to growth. And Change is inevitable. Growth is optional. And stuff that I'm going to share today is so new that not even Oprah knows about it. I mean, wow. this is fresh stuff. Exclusive. Wow. Release right. here first. Can't wait. So let's do some level setting. Tell us, what uh, Scott, what the Minnesota Sales Institute is and what your day-to-day life is. I just celebrated 20 years in the business, and I've been selling since I was 21 years old. And I work with companies or individuals on creating more collaborative and committed teams through training, classes, workshops, coaching, seminars, and work on the introduction, the application, and the reinforcement. And we need all three steps. We need the introduction of new content. We need to go through the application of that new content so that when we get a situation where we can apply something new and better, we're going to get a different outcome, a better outcome. Different is not always better. We want a better outcome. And then just like any other change, we need reinforcement, constantly reinforcing our healthy habits to be able to get the predictable outcomes. Sometimes we feel like there's a lot of uncertainty. However, I think sometimes there's a little bit more unpredictability because we're comparing the present with the past. That's unpredictability. Mm-hmm. We can make things more predictable in the future if we feel like we're in control of our time. Too often, salespeople just don't feel like they're in control of their time. You have to make good time trades every single day and get an investment in time and a return on your investment of time. That was probably a little longer than you were thinking of, but uh, no, I started, started the preaching to the choir about losing track of time. Uh, with yeah, me. So, common. 
I made the joke in our intro about you about the nine patented nine step process right. and the special sauce. So you don't have a special sauce in a patented nine step process, my, do you? My special sauce is really leveraging my experience being relative to a salesperson's challenge or goals or a sales team's goals and challenges and to really be able to find out where the kink in the hose is. Where are we not getting the throughput that we need to be able to get a predictable, better outcome? And I'm a little untraditional when it comes to sales training or sales development. And that is that I work a lot on uncovering the unsupportive beliefs that salespeople have. We all have experiences in our life and the interpretation of those experiences creates beliefs. Our behavior is determined by what we believe to be true and not true. And obviously, our behaviors give us the outcome. There's a ton of sales books on techniques and skills and nine steps and everything like that. But if you can't get through the conceptual barriers of dealing with some head trash, you're not going to apply anything, no matter what I say it or you read it in a book or watch a podcast or a webinar and podcast, etc. And there's a lot of beliefs. Common ones in sales is that, you know, a lot of us were raised in a young, impressionable age. It's not polite to talk about money. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm guessing you're your number one. Objection is money. Is the price is too high because you didn't talk about mm -hmm. money in comparison to the cost, consequences, and risk of inaction. Another one is don't talk to strangers. Well, how's that going as a salesperson? I mean, are we uh -huh. just sitting here waiting for the phone to ring because you know we want them to call us. We don't want to call them. And if you can take a call, you can make a call. How about that for a concept of a new sales skill? Uh, that's certainly true. So. What are some of the indicators you talked about head trash? What are mm. and really one of the overall questions I want people to take away from this is why you would want to hire a, somebody, an outside source to come in because there are certain instances where it's incredibly value so valuable. Mm -hmm. So, talk a little bit more about head trash and what does that mean and how can people identify it in their salespeople? Well, if, if we look at head trash within an organization, the leadership within an organization. Do they believe that there are more opportunities in the marketplace right now? And a lot of the listeners, I'm sure, that, that are, are with us today are independent contractors. They are self-employed. And their head trash is, is maybe listening to the news and thinking that we're in inflation or a recession and you know everything's going to clamp down. And then they adopt that belief and the outlook of the marketplace is negative. So they don't see opportunities. The other side of it is looking at companies that believe this is a great time to gear up when it comes to marketing, when it comes to developing salespeople, because they feel there are more opportunities in the marketplace and there's going to be a refinement of companies that are going to be able to survive and not survive. And if you have a belief there's more opportunities, you want to convert those conversations to commitments. You believe you have the right people and sometimes that can be a, another step in the de development. And if you don't have the right people, let's get the right people. Let's hire the right people. Let's train and onboard the right people. And then let's create an investment of time and energy and resources in developing the skills, managing the behavior, offering consistent reinforcement to the salespeople on what they need to convert more conversations to commitments. So it's really three steps. Do you believe there's opportunities? Do you have the right people? Are you willing to invest in creating those opportunities into commitments? What are some of the first things that you do when you come into an organization? The first question that I ask the leadership of the company is, define the problems you solve. Mm. Tell me about the problem you solve. 
And this is the first step of sales change, you know, culture development, a sales culture within an organization. Often, they cannot define the problem. Leadership in the company cannot define the problem. I just read an article in the Harvard Business Review a couple issues back, and they said the reason that startups fail is because they don't know what problem they solve. They have a solution, but they don't know what problem they solve. Leadership needs to know what problem they solve, because if they don't know that, you cannot instruct and lead the sales team. And, and this happened to me in a company that I was doing some work for last year. And I was working with the salespeople and I was asking the salespeople, what problem do you solve? And I was working on really a foundational question. And I realized the salespeople don't know what problem the company solves. And I go, whose fault yep. is that? Well, that's leadership not setting the, the the definition of here's the problem that we solve. And if sales leadership doesn't understand the problem that the sales team has, I come in, I'm trying to solve a problem, assuming that there's some fundamentals that are in place, and I end up frustrating the salespeople more because I'm talking about stuff that's at a higher level than where they are. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very frustrating for them and for me because I really want them to be able to take what I share with them and apply it that day. But if they become more confused and they're more distracted and frustrated, it's a setback for everybody. Is it often where you find that the leadership, the salespeople, when they're, they're answering that question of what exactly do you, what problem do you solve? What do you do when you get two different answers? I start to role play it a little bit through a sales call and how a sales conversation would go with a salesperson and a prospect to be able to weed out how does a salesperson reframe and reposition their solution in a way that sticks to a problem that a prospect has that makes the company that the salesperson is working for be put in a better light, a better light. Different is not always better. I want to be able to work with companies developing the salespeople where their solution is is presented to be a better solution for a prospect. And it comes into that conversation. And through that conversation and role-playing it out, there's a refinement to it that really comes upon what is it that we really do and what do we do first? Who's the best target that we should be reaching? Who's the best universe that we should be selling in? And then there's also secondary markets that we go through. So sometimes it's a prioritization. Why do salespeople fail? Oh, this kind of goes through the process of change. Uh, The first step is awareness. I mean, do the salespeople know that they're failing? Are they frustrated when they don't make their goals? I mean, think about a scenario where you're three weeks into the month, you're at 50% of your goal, you have one week left, what are you going to do different? And and are they going to step it up and make the goal? Probably not. I mean, it's a bit of a long shot at that point. But the point of that exercise is to go through the situation that you're in right now. And let's just pretend, like I say, it's March. You're 50% of your goal. You just finished the third week of the month. What are you going to do different in April? Now, the awareness is I have to change my strategy and I need to beef it up so that the first week of the month, I'm at 33% of my goal. The second week, I'm at 66% of my goal. The Mm -hmm. third week, I'm at 80% of my goal. Uh, 
And then the fourth week, you bring it in and you just put it over the top and you end up reaching the goal. So how are you measuring your productivity every single week? That's awareness. The second thing is getting into knowledge. If you're not making your goal, why are you not making your goal? What do you need to know and do? And so often I work with salespeople that know but don't do. Mm-hmm. If I find a salesperson that doesn't know, they can't do. And I'll work with them. So the knowledge is, is the second piece. You get the knowledge. The second part of that question is you believe the knowledge will work. Do you believe the knowledge will work? I share something with you. You scratch your head. You say, that'll never work in my industry. You have no idea what it's like to be in my industry. You have no experience in my industry. Yeah, I got a lot of experience in influence and persuasion and selling, and it's applicable when it comes to human nature, no matter what the role is. People go through the same process. The third step is, do you believe you deserve a better life? The the third part of the second question, Mm -hmm. do you believe you deserve a better life? If you don't believe you deserve a better life, you're not going to apply anything that I share with you. You're not going to apply anything that you learn on a webinar or a podcast, period. Now, once you believe you deserve a better life, the third step in change is application. So now you take the application and you apply the new technique. And once you apply the new technique, you get a different outcome. Now, it might not work perfectly the first time, but it's a different outcome. And you're on the road to recovery at this point, and improving that technique is going to improve the results. So why do salespeople fail? They know, but they don't do, mm-hmm. and or they don't know, so they don't do. And then the last step is the reinforcement. It's the internalization. It's us really believing that this process is our new truth. This is us. This is the new you when you go through those four steps, awareness, knowledge, application, and reinforcement and internalization. So that's that's why they fail. And they can't get out of their head that they deserve a better life or better results or more success. That's where I find the biggest problem is. So the doing is the most important thing. The doing is the application, action. It's always action. There's a lot of smart people, a lot of smart people that don't do anything with their knowledge. And, you know, I, I look at salespeople and it's really two categories. There are some salespeople that just love selling, period. Love it. I mean, you've met these salespeople, no matter what they do, they love selling. The other type of salespersons is that they love what they sell. You know, mm-hmm. they, they work for a dealership and they love Porsches. And you just go and you talk to that salesperson and they could talk to you, you know, for hours about Porsche and what a great car it is. And they love what they sell. Those are passionate people, smart, passionate people. But well, one of the things, I'm going to jump in for a second, Trigby. So yeah. one of the things that we like to talk about on this podcast is for People kind of in in our industry or the folks that we serve, you know, B2B services folks, which there's a lot of selling involved in that. Manufacturing tends to be bigger Mm -hmm. um, ticket items. One of the big things that we run into as we're trying to help them dial it in is maybe something's just a little off in their Mm -hmm. sales process, right? Mm -hmm. As, As we try to merge together sales and marketing and get working together, what are some of the common things that you see that are maybe symptoms of, you know, okay, well, either, either this is a bad fit for our mm-hmm. sales team, or, you know, in, in this individual case, the person's a bad fit, or that there's just a little bit of tweaking that we can do to get this person just really rocking in the sales role. Mm-hmm. 
I think every conversation that a salesperson has with a prospect, there are some undiscovered expectations. Mm. And a salesperson is in charge of controlling the conversation. I think that that's their role. That's their obligation. They want to be considered a trusted advisor. We've heard that term for 20, 30 years. Right. And in order to be a trusted advisor, you need to lead the prospect and you need to challenge the prospect on thinking differently. Yeah. And if you can't lead and challenge them to think differently, the prospect's not going to come upon a different outcome when it comes to a decision that needs to be made. They're not going to make a change. Salespeople compete with inaction. It's prospects doing nothing. So we need to be able to overcome some of our internal weaknesses as salespeople, and one of them is a high need for approval. So there's a lot of sales training out there that says, you know, you want to be liked. Go out and be liked and be like people that people like to do business with, that they're like, that they like to be, you know, whatever. And we need to move past liked and earn their respect. We've all heard the saying that, you know, people buy emotionally, they justify it intellectually. Mm-hmm. Being emotional is challenging them. So you might say something or ask a question that makes a prospect uncomfortable and they might get a little bit defensive. I mean, you're, you don't want to disappoint, you know, just, you know, have them be disgusted with you or they throw you out of the office, but (laughs) you need to be able to demonstrate enough confidence in what you have to lead the conversation, to challenge a prospect, to think differently and to be able to be frustrated with the current situation enough where they're going to go through the process of change. (laughs) Where's the knowledge? That means a solution from another salesperson. What's the application? The prospect buying the solution from the salesperson. What's the internal reinforcement? It's the customer being satisfied with the decision that they made from the salesperson. So getting into overcoming a high need for approval is one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Number two is salespeople can be negatively assumptive. Negatively assumptive. They walk into a business and they say, hey, I can save you 25% on your electric bills. You're assuming that the moron that's in charge of the facilities doesn't do a very good job. That doesn't right. go over real well. I right. mean, you're, that's negatively assuming. Or you can walk into an organization and you say, you know, I'm going to kind of assume that when it comes to making financial decisions, making the best financial decisions and, and, and saving money might be one of your motivations. Is that is that a safe assumption? So you're being positively assumptive. Mm-hmm. And most people say, yeah, I mean, that who, who wouldn't want to do that? So they buy into what you're talking about. But we have to be careful in situation when it comes to money is to not turn our own product into a commodity. So don't be assumptive. That's the second one. The third one would be is this is, you know, one of Trigby's favorite topics is my relationship with the word help. I yeah. just do not like the word help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't I, a salesperson that comes into a company and says, Hey, I help companies do this, that, and the other thing. It's like prospects don't want to be insulted that they need help. They don't want to lose control of a conversation. And when salespeople go into a a prospect and they use the word help, they're enabling inaction and salespeople compete with inaction. They're enabling the prospect to do nothing because the conversation has started out where the salesperson is going to help the prospect, which means a salesperson is more committed to making a change than the prospect is. Mm-hmm. And then we wonder why we as salespeople get frustrated when prospects don't return our calls or emails or voicemails, etc. How did you start the conversation? Are you working with them or are you helping them? They're sitting back waiting there, waiting for you to come in and help them. It's, it's not a good start to a beneficial, mutual, committed relationship conversation when we use the word help. 
So yeah, a, better, a better way to say that is probably we work with companies work with. who do that. I love it. Or oh. we partner with companies who do this, right? Yeah, uh, partner can be a common one. Okay. Um, I think that can be misinterpreted on the other side sure. with the prospect. Yeah. I mean, I've I've used that in one situation, and and you know, I didn't get paid for. <laughs> six, seven, eight weeks. And they said, well, Scott, you said you're going to partner with us. And right now cash flow is a little light. So we're going to pay our bills before we end up paying our partners because we're partnering together, which means we're both <laughs> sacrificing cash Ouch. flow. So, you know, I'm running a little low. You're going to have to run a little low because we're partners in this. And it's like, eh, I don't like the context not, of that word. not quite <laughs> what I meant by partner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, what One of the other words that I'm, find myself using and I'd love to get your take on this is that I'm I'm trying to completely erase it from my vocabulary as the word just. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. do that in emails. I do that on phone calls. As people say, well, I'm just checking in. I'm just oh, just calling to base. say hi. Just yeah. touching base. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. you know I'm calling for a very specific purpose. I want to know a specific piece of information. Yeah. Right. Right. I just yeah. need that one thing. Right. Yeah, that's good to be conscious of that. I've I recognize that when I write an email, I just say I just wanted to follow up on our conversation and go over some of the, you know, takeaway items. And so I I start off with just and just is kind of a defining it's just this, it's not something else, or it's not addition to. Sometimes we defeat that when we start adding really long emails and it starts off with just. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I agree with that position. I'm, I'm not a fan of, you know, touching base and, and, and circling back without an agenda. And I think or, you, you know, you, your, intent, in, yeah. your intent is to, to follow through on the conversation and follow through on your commitment and to be able to demonstrate that you are leading this change and that prospects can feel comfortable relying on you that you're going to follow through. And when you do that, that creates value. Mm-hmm. I, I think about that when, when I get voicemails from people and they don't leave a voicemail message or they call and leave a voicemail message that's not very intriguing. And then I go, I'm, I'm just not inspired to call them back. And then I want to see if they call me back and leave another message. If they give me three messages and they're, they're not very good, I'll give them a call back because they were persistent enough to leave more than one message. The behavior was there, the technique and the content was not. But what are we really looking for sometimes with salespeople is to commit to the behavior. We can teach them the techniques. And Mm -hmm. that's where I see a lot of salespeople fail. And we talked about this earlier is that they know, but they don't do. And I can teach them what to know, but they got to be committed to what they do. I mean, I get called into companies. They say, hey, Scott, you know, my sales are declining. I really believe that I got the right people. I want you to come in. And can you guarantee that you're going to increase the revenue 20%? And I go, that's a really difficult situation that you would be putting me in is because you're asking me to guarantee your salespeople's commitment. I can't guarantee somebody else's commitment. Mm -hmm. I can't guarantee what kind of culture you have within an organization. I can't guarantee what kind of resources you're offering them in order for them to be successful. Mm -hmm. I cannot be in charge of that. I cannot guarantee that. I can deliver the same content, the same information to 100 people, and there will be people that walk away with it and start applying it that day, and they become successful. The other 90% 
just go check the box. You know, management sent me here and I get sendees. They're not going to do anything different. More to that point, I think when people ask you that question, what they're really saying is it's a, it's a risk management. And mm. my answer is always, well, if I could create 20% more money in a company, what, what would I need you for? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fine. Do it. Go out and do it. I get calls from, from business owners and, you know, they, they pepper me with questions and I give them my responses and my answers. And I, and I, I sell a little bit, you know, wanting to say, you know, why don't we start there when you hire me? But I also give them a lot of content and a lot of information so that they can really get a snapshot of my experience and what I would be sharing with their salespeople. And then they say, wow, Scott, you're really giving me a lot to think about. I really appreciate your time today. I'm going to go back to my team and I'm going to talk to some other people. We're going to talk about what we can do based on what you shared with me. And we'll get back to you if we need to hire you. I said, I appreciate that. Thank you for letting me know. And thank you for being upfront with me. I'm kind of curious. What are you going to do tomorrow that you didn't do yesterday that's going to give you the results that you want that you don't currently have? Oh, I don't know where, um, and they don't do it. The crickets, they don't do it. I can share the information with them, but they will not take the lead. So it's almost like you need to bring me in to take the lead so that I can work on reinforcing it with your salespeople and define a culture. Then I can hand over to you as leadership so that you can maintain the momentum from that point forward. One of the things that we noticed in 2020 in the marketing space is when the pandemic hit and everybody had to go digital and everybody had to go virtual and all of a sudden Zoom became a a nomenclature the same on Xerox and Kleenex is Mm -hmm. so many people went did some stuff that we've been doing for a long time, like webinars, Mm -hmm. and they're all almost universally bad at it. Right. So how has selling changed since the pandemic and how can salespeople adapt? Well, I think there's one thing that's the most important part of the sales process that we cannot overlook. And that is really building that trust and rapport in front of the conversation. And when we're on Zoom, in in most cases, I'll be assumptive, in most cases, it seems like we're working with somebody that is in a home environment, a remote worker is out of their home. So we're having a conversation when somebody is in their home. That's a very personal conversation. And we saw that right away with when COVID hit. And we need to be able to take some time to build the trust and rapport with the people that we're working with on a conversation to discuss challenges, problems, and goals so that we deliver the right solution that sticks to a problem that gives them a better outcome. So when it comes to an in-person meeting, we still need to do the the Zoom or we still need to do the rapport, but we also need to work on asking them good questions to prove that we are relevant. In, In these marketplace right now, it seems like a prospect can go through two or three or four steps within the purchasing decision and never talk to a salesperson. I think a salesperson has a chance to have more meetings within a day via Zoom versus in person. I think that's a fact and looking at time. And if they can have more meetings, they can make them more efficient with shorter meetings, higher amount of content and information exchanged. They can get into more conversations within the prospects. But we need to use that time wisely so that we inspire the prospect to create interest and curiosity in the conversation so that they want to learn more about what we do. And we slowly start feeding them more and more solutions that they can adopt and purchase and apply Mm -hmm. and get a better outcome with that. So in some cases via Zoom or in person, it hasn't changed. 
Um, but we need to follow the same sales process regardless. And, and sometimes salespeople are just don't prepare for sales calls. I think that's so interesting because we get that question all the time doing web development that we do at BusyWeb, mm-hmm. where people are like, well, how come it's not done? How come uh, it's just, you know, squares on a page? And mm. it's like, that's not, the, that's not the point of it. The point of it is, just as you said, those individual prospects are examining everything. They're doing all their own due diligence to figure out whether or not they even want to deign to speak to you. Right. And right. so you're being judged and all that takes time. There's such a marked difference between just okay and really great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that companies who really get that not only invest in, in marketing, but they also inv- invest in their salespeople to get them continually better. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that you offer that is really tremendously important is HubSpot and the ability to manage more than two conversations in my head. And salespeople have got to become very accustomed to a CRM and manage 300 conversations with a CRM versus two in my head. And it's amazing how you can use a CRM to keep track of conversations and information and to be able to be personal in the next conversation that you had. You know, you told me the last time we talked that your mother was going through a hip surgery. I'm kind of curious, uh, how did that work out? And and to be able to have that personal, and then it's like, wow, thank you for asking. I'm impressed. You know, you don't sound like every other salesperson that just wants to cut to the chase and get to the business. I, I, I had enough trust and rapport with you to share that personal information with you. And you took notes and you kept track of that and then you you shared it back with me wow we must be really good friends if i shared that with you because that's very personal information you can't do that if you don't put it in the crm i mean mm-hmm. come on people you, you have to take the time to enter stuff into a crm it frustrates me with you know companies that don't use a crm to manage conversations because you can't do more than two in your head i think the other thing that frustrates me with crms is salesperson adoption is sales uh, older salespeople especially will say, well, no, I don't want to have all my stuff written down. Right. And it really is, if you pick the right tool, it's mm-hmm. easy. Now all you need mm-hmm. to do is connect your email and remember to make your call from the system and it's all there. Mm-hmm. So compare that and contrast it against trying to keep post-it notes on your computer or running an Excel, an Excel spreadsheet or something where you keep all your data together. I mean, at some point, you really need to look at what's the investment that's worth my productivity. Mm-hmm. And I've actually met with sales teams that, you know, our, our management doesn't actually want us to use HubSpot, but I have my own account and I just, oh. I just use it. Don't tell them. Yeah. No, it's free. You know, the HubSpot right. is free. So, you know, they're just, they're just doing it and more power to them. Yeah. But wow. Yeah. I worked for a very large legal publishing company in town and I brought in my own CRM at the time <laughs> and they installed it on my computer. I was a top sales rep. I doubled my quota in one year. Damn. Um, and nobody else was even interested in a CRM. And when they, mm-hmm. when leadership saw what I was using, you know, they asked if, you know, what the name of it was. And then other sales reps had it installed on their computer. But that's back in the time we had three and a half inch discs. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, and the converse is true, I think, too. And I'll share a personal story is I came into the office one day and Dave made a kind of an offhand joke about how somebody called and complained about me. And then he went and filled up his coffee. And I was like, 
oh, wait a minute. What? You want to back it up here? He's like, no, no, it's fine. No, 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 no. Back, back, mm-hmm. back it up. Let the, and he and he said, okay, well, you know, this this client of ours, they they sent somebody to us, and then uh, I think what happened is the guy that they sent to us was mad that you wouldn't give him a fifty percent price discount. So oh. the guy called and said that you wouldn't give him the time of day. So I looked in the CRM, and because uh, the customer called and complained about you, and I said, "Well, it said you were you were mean and rude to the guy, and didn't didn't help him." And I said, "Well, here's three emails Trigby sent, and if a forty five minute recorded phone conversation the guy spent with the guy. What more do you want?" Mm, mm, so in, no. in that particular instance, having Big Brother over my shoulder actually saved my saved my bacon right. because right. he was able to identify that the problem wasn't in my interaction it was that i i wouldn't give the guy i wouldn't cut the guy, guy a deal right, right 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 yeah yeah so it can yeah. help and it's helpful to manage you know sales management needs to be able to see what people are doing because maybe you're having an off day maybe something's not happening right or maybe there's something that you can coach people on mm-hmm. like well okay we all agreed that you have you know our um, our, our agreements inside of our organization are that you're going to call a prospect within three hours, and then you're going to do five follow-ups over the course of the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing that you're only following up once. Mm-hmm. So what's going on? And so right. you can work on that with people because you said it before, Scott, you know, people will either do it or they won't. And sometimes they get it, but they just refuse to do it. And so mm-hmm. that's something that you need to coach and accountability is the only way to get there. Yeah. You bring up a very good point and that is that, you know, culture is defined by what leadership is willing to tolerate. Yeah. And you have to set that expectation real quick on the onboarding of a of a sales rep, a new employee. I think I have a three-step onboarding process. Number 1 is make sure that all expectations are clear and in writing. First of all, and you have that as part of the promises within the organization. The second is that you create consequences for not delivering on the expectations. There are consequences. I mean, we always think that termination is the major consequence, but the other consequence is maybe we need more time on training and development. Maybe we need to be able to give them a script that they feel comfortable using when they're on a phone call, so that at the end of the script, when they leave a message, they, they say, if I don't hear from you in two days, I'll call you back. That's mm-hmm. a promise. Mm-hmm. And when they call back in two days, they're delivering on a promise that they said earlier and not having that feeling, that often feeling that salespeople have is, I don't want to appear desperate, so I'm not going to call them back. And I just talked to, you know, I just left a message two days ago. So I'm going to wait three weeks before I call them back and give them a chance to really think about what I said on a voicemail message. I got news for you, buddy. They they, they forgot about it 45 seconds after they hit cancel and delete. It's gone. Right. (laughs) Even listen to the voicemail, right? (laughs) What are are some of the ways that salespeople can create unique identifiers. I know I've been uh, had a, had a few in my day where I've create, created unique experiences to get people to, to to call back, but that's sort of the job, right? As to get, what do I need to do to get people to call back? It, it sounds like you're, you know, creating memorable experiences that mm-hmm. that cause people to remember their, their engagement with you. And I think the first goal that a salesperson has to have is to not sound like a salesperson. 
So you've got to do things that are a little bit outside the norm of what prospects expect from people that they've never talked to before that want to talk to them, which in most cases is a salesperson. If you think about prospects calling people that they don't know, they're interested in talking about things that they want to talk about, the prospect. Mm -hmm. And we need to sound different than a salesperson. And when we start a conversation off with saying, you know, I work with companies that that want to are committed to improving this, that, and the other thing. So you're posi- you're being positively assumptive. Um, I don't want to assume that you have any problems in this area with your company. Mm-hmm. If you'd be interested in having a conversation, I can share with you some of the things that we've done that we've started within the last six months that are often not provided by other companies like ours. And then with that conversation, we can see if there's any reason for us to continue it or not. I welcome a call back at this phone number when you have a couple minutes. If I don't hear from you in two or three days, I'll give you a ring back. Thanks for listening to this entire message. Have a great day. You know, one of the things that uh, along those same lines, Scott, that uh, one of your famous blogs that I've always enjoyed is getting people to call you back isn't the problem. It's getting them to call back happily. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, salespeople complain to me. How do I get a prospect to call me back? Well, call them and tell them that you're their neighbor and their house is on fire. And, you know, they might call you back pretty promptly. Now, they're going to be a little hot and you're misleading and you're not being really truthful at all with them. Mm-hmm. They'll call you back. But I don't think that that's the intent that the salesperson has. But or, or the, the other one you see is, is uh, well, maybe you're not high enough up in the company oh, that I need to be wow. talking to. Yeah, now that's a technique that if you leave six yeah. messages and they don't call you back and you can say, you know, I've left six messages. I'm kind of thinking to myself, um, you may may or may or not be in charge of this project anymore. You may or may not be with the company anymore. I don't know since we haven't been able to chat. I'm going to call and see if there's somebody else that's in charge of this project. If I'm wrong, please call me back by the end of the day. If I don't hear from you tomorrow, I'm going to try to find out who's in charge of it. Right. Now. You're, you're getting to a point where if there was a productive conversation in the beginning, in most cases there are. I mean, prospects can be very persuasive and convincing on getting free information and consulting out of salespeople. And salespeople love to share what they know with prospects because that builds confidence in them. Let me tell you everything that I know. And we educate the prospect enough to do it on themselves, or we educate them enough to be able to shop our proposal on the street and break it down and to end up investing less. Or we can educate our prospects to influence them on making a better choice. So educate to influence, not educate to teach. And when we really concentrate on the questions and the information in those first calls and we create enough interest and curiosity, most likely we're going to have a second call. But the prospect saying, you know, the first 15 minutes that I spent with you was kind of a waste of time and I'm not interested in spending another 15, 30 or an hour with you because I got no value out of the first one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we sort of glommed over and I want to spend the rest of our time talking about is you mentioned in brief about how People buy emotionally. And so mm. much of selling isn't about what you say. It's how you make people feel when mm. you're saying it. Yeah. Yeah. So, little Mario Angelo quote there. I think it almost mm-hmm. came out of you, Trigby. It just, yeah. It's, it's, it, it, <laughs> it's it, in it, your heart. It, 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 flowed, your heart. <laughs> it flowed just like Maya. You, you know, it's, it's, it's so it's eloquent. Right. Right. Write it down. But there's such a juxtaposition, I think, between the, the, the cliche of a salesperson of the Glen Gary, Glen Ross. No. School of Man Pantel? and Pantel? Pantel? Is this from your nostalgic file? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, or the the quote of like, who 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 told you 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 were allowed to come work with men? Who and said that, you could talk to men? Yeah, yeah. Who said you could, that? That that's so not true anymore. Right, right. Twenty twenty two. So how how do you salespeople harness that feelings? And I I have a follow up question, but and, and I don't want to keep pontificating, and I want to make sure that I leave this for you. But one of the things in sales that you learn is eventually you start you start getting callous to the idea that if a deal doesn't close, it has nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. You start your career and it has everything to do with you. And then so suddenly it doesn't anymore. Right. Yeah. There seems to be that, that what they say, detachment salespeople start to get this detachment and they're detached from the outcome. And in, in a way that's good and that's healthy when you're really practicing healthy habits and a healthy behavior and you're constantly getting new qualified leads in the pipeline and for one reason or another a company didn't buy from you for their reasons and whatever they were doing that had a higher priority than the problem that they shared with you or the solution that you're offering there was something that was of a high priority that doesn't mean that what you sell is not important it doesn't mean what you sell is not valuable it's just in the priority list right now it's not at a t- at a point where they want to make a decision and that detachment is healthy so that we don't feel like we're you know we're losing and we're getting emotionally beat up and we're a failure i mean people mm-hmm. fail but they're not failures and getting into conversations where we become sort of desensitized to any growth is where it really starts to get dangerous. And, you know, again, change starts with self-awareness. And I've met some professional, smart, smart people that have no self-awareness at all. They have no concept of how they're coming off. They have no concept about how other people feel when they engage with them. Mm -hmm. And they're not even interested in changing. And they're just going, you know, that's the way I've always done it. And that's who I am. And you're just going to have to tolerate the way I behave. Okay. I guess, you know, you might want to be at least plus one in value that you're worth tolerating. So you got to be delivering a little bit more than the expense of tolerating you. So it must be plus one at least. And that's the difference between IQ and EQ, emotional intelligence. So true. So if, if you at least understand and have a little bit of empathy and, and uh, can think from the other person's perspective, I mean, I think that's table stakes for any good salesperson. I mean, Definitely. certainly you can, you can be a, a good salesperson in engineering or something highly technical if you're super, super smart and you can make those connections. Mm-hmm. But you're never going to get very far unless you can build some sort of rapport right away right. with right. the person you're dialing. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that's going to make the biggest difference. The EQ, I mean, being empathetic is really looking at a position from the prospect's point of view. Mm -hmm. And uh, you as a salesperson, if you can practice empathy, and I have empathy as a strength out of the five strengths, so I think of it as kind of a liability at times because sometimes I can be empathetic when salespeople are not making the behavioral goals because of excuses that they're giving me versus reasons that come up in a person's life. Um, But if I, as a salesperson, can see the challenge and the frustration and the commitment from the prospect side, it makes it easier for me to relate to them Mm -hmm. and to be able to lead them through the challenges of making a commitment to a change that's going to give them a better result. I mean, change is not easy for people to really adopt and accept. And in some cases, people are looking for relief instead of a cure because a cure mm-hmm. is too much work. And this is Covey that, that comes up right, with this. Yep. Are you looking for a cure or are you looking for relief? 
and people come to me wanting relief and I and I can do that but it's not going to change the culture within the company we we need to work on a cure which is going to change the entire sales culture from the CEO down to the frontline salespeople hmm. one last question before we take off uh, on the feelings game is when you're evaluating companies and trying to help them with their sales force and coach their sales force, mm-hmm. talk about the role of ego on the positive and on the negative. Yeah. yeah. I, I think salespeople are generally highly emotional people. They they go out and work on persuasion, influence. They risk rejection constantly. Mm-hmm. They need to be confident enough in their self-worth to be able to be emotionally risking every single day with every single person that they talk to. And they need to be able to to have that self-worth and have that ego and have that confidence when when they're talking with somebody. And and that that's a style that a salesperson has. And and I want to improve the style. I never want to step on a salesperson's style. But I also want to introduce a process that everybody can follow when it comes to projecting goals and projecting revenue and to be able to shorten the sales cycle and increase the closing ratio and improve the profit. We need to manage a process in order to do that. And every salesperson has got to manage and implement the same sales process in order to make outcomes predictable. Now, the challenge is some sales leaders don't lead a team on the same sales process. And they let everybody go out and do it however they want, as long as they make their number. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the reputation of a company in the marketplace determined by these ambassadors. These salespeople are going out representing the company's reputation. Mm -hmm. And if they're all doing it differently, it's very risky to be able to define a reputation in the marketplace and it makes customer service almost impossible to manage because you can never reduce the expense of customer service. You want, you want to invest in customer service to retain customers and to be able to sell additional products and more products and get referrals through customer service experiences. But you want to be able to manage the expense of having it increase so much that you're taking on all of these problems that salespeople are creating in the marketplace. They create these problems that cost companies money in customer service cleanups. Well, especially when you're dealing with someone that wants to build a relationship and is highly emotional and engaging, they might overpromise mm-hmm. and, uh, and wind up selling something or, or telling them that or telling the prospect that they can do something that right. they would need to way over scope for. Yeah, yeah. That's so sort true. of an extension of that idea that we talked about earlier about having getting people to call back isn't the problem. Getting getting people to agree to the thing that you want them to do is the problem. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. Like I can make sales all day long if I just give people whatever they want at whatever price they want, but that doesn't help anybody. Well, you look at some of the companies. I remember one was it a payroll company. This was probably about five years ago, where they said everybody's going to make seventy two thousand dollars a year, and the CEO yeah. said everybody's going to make seventy two thousand dollars a year. That that company's not around anymore, by the way. I mean, that didn't work. It mm-hmm. went under within a year. Mm-hmm. You, you just can't do that and, and just make everybody feel good by paying them sometimes, you know, twice what they were making before because, you know, you want to make everybody feel good. That's not good business. And you look at it going, you just didn't survive. 
mm-hmm. you'll never last if you race to the bottom and cutting a price. You just you just won't. And uh, you know, unfortunately, customers do it to themselves. I look at booking a flight from here to Denver. I got a few options to pick. One of the airlines will give me a nickel and dime, and I got to pay for a seat. I got to pay for a bag. I got to pay for a ticket. I got to pay for a spot in line. And all of a sudden, I add up all of those expenses, and it's the same as the other one. You know that everything's included. But the customers do it to themselves. Figure out what's most valuable as a customer, as a consumer, and then be willing to pay for what you find valuable. Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to be satisfied in the transaction because people love to buy. They really do. They hate to be sold, but they love to buy. Scott, thank you so much. I know I could probably go on for another two and a half, three hours with you, talking you. shop and swapping fish stories. But I would enjoy it. What? Uh, where can people find you if they're interested in uh, learning more about the Sales Institute and how you can help them? I think the easiest thing to do is go to my website, mnsales.com. I've got blogs. Uh, I've written a book, if you're interested in the book, called Taking Off into the Wind, Creating Lift Out of Life. I've got um, all of the chiclets, I think, to social media. So if you want to watch some YouTube videos, you can get some snippets. You can get some kind of improv videos on different topics like budget is a a popular one. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my most popular blogs is I'm a first responder to a no soliciting sign. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> and uh, also another one on you know stop turning your product into a commodity is another that's one that salespeople do commonly. And there's a podcast. And oh yeah, I do a podcast, 15, right? Do so, a podcast called Winning at Selling. Yeah. So go to winningatselling.com or find it on any platforms that you get your podcasts. And there's a special episode that we did with, with Dave. Yeah. With, with Dave and Trigby. What number did we do together? 515. Uh, yeah. So if you go to mnsales.com and search Trigvi is probably the easiest. <laughs> you'll find you'll find our podcast on there. And it was so much fun, Scott. Thank you for oh, returning yeah. the favor. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Thanks for coming, Scott. We'll see you next time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>